Hello and welcome. This is Significant Figures. I'm Viva Horowitz. This is WHCL-FM Clinton, New York, broadcasting on 88.7. My guest today is Professor Aaron Strong. Aaron, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Viva. You are a professor of environmental studies. That's that correct. Right? Welcome. And tell us about your particular expertise. Sure. Um, so I am a climate scientist, but that can mean a lot of different things. And one of the things I study in my research group um, are feedbacks within the carbon cycle. So you don't have climate change unless you have uh, greenhouse gases accumulating in the atmosphere. And one of the things I'm really interested in is how different kinds of human activities lead to more of those gases being in the atmosphere. And that's one of the things we look at in my lab. Okay, so these greenhouse gases include things like carbon dioxide, which we know are, um, is responsible for global warming. Yeah, exactly. So there, there are two particular gases I look at. One is carbon dioxide. And, you know, you're breathing out right now. And, you know, we both have our masks on in the studio, but we're breathing out carbon dioxide. That's not the CO2 I'm worried about, because when you breathe out carbon dioxide, um, how did the carbon get into your body for you to breathe it out as CO2? Well, it came from the food that you ate. And how did it get in the food that you ate? Well, it was recently in the atmosphere and then photosynthesis happened in some sort of plant and took the CO2 out of the atmosphere. So when you breathe out, you're putting CO2 back into the atmosphere that was really recently there. You're not really increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. But when we do things like burn fossil fuels, um, that increases the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere because that carbon was not recently in the atmosphere. It was underground as coal, oil, or natural gas. Um, now, most of the warming that we've seen and the change in our climate is from CO2, but there's another greenhouse gas called methane that I'm also interested in. Methane is CH4, so it's the same carbon atom, but it has four hydrogens associated with it instead of the, the two oxygens. And um, on a per ton by ton basis, methane is actually a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. It produces more of a warming effect. Um, and the sources of methane are one of the things I'm, I'm particularly interested in. So what sources have you studied? Yeah, so um, methane can uh, come from a whole bunch of different kinds of human activities. Um, uh, the guts of cows, very famously, right? Um, I don't actually go, you know, with a little uh, gas vial around cows, um, although it might be fun to do at some point around here, and I'll come back to some of the climate solutions that do involve the cows that you see in the landscape around Clinton, driving around dip, listening to WHCL. Um, but uh, the sources I'm interested in are actually from wetlands and flooded areas. So anytime you have some organic material, just think vegetation, something like that, and you add a bunch of water um, to that system uh, and it just sits there, uh, that creates the perfect environment for bacteria called methanogens to um, produce methane, low oxygen, stagnant water environments. Same kind of thing if you're worried about breeding mosquitoes, same kinds of environments are, are potential sources of methane. What's happening is there's not enough oxygen for the aerobic bacteria to um, uh, do their thing and decompose the matter. Um, and a different group of decomposers called methanogens kind of takes over in these low oxygen environments and produces methane gas. And globally, um, hydropower dams, rice fields, 
uh, wetlands. These are all sources of methane. Of course, some of those are from human activities like, like rice agriculture and hydropower dams, and some of it's naturally occurring, just areas that are naturally wetlands. That's so interesting because I would have assumed that human activity has decreased wetlands. I mean, I've been to Florida. <laughs> it's less wetlands than it was, I Absolutely. think, 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, human activity is decreasing the overall amount of wetlands, but human activity is also increasing the overall amount of methane. So most of the methane we're talking about that warms the planet is coming from uh, animal agriculture from the guts of cows, or from leaky natural gas pipelines. Um, pro tip out there, natural gas is methane. It's not just a source of methane. Natural gas is methane. That's what it is. It's CH4, it's a hydrocarbon we burn for fuel. Um, and so uh, when those pipelines leak, that produces methane. Um, uh, and rice agriculture is a big source of methane globally. So we filled in a lot of these wetlands where we're actually um, uh, frequently flooding more and more areas um, uh, to make these kind of artificial wetlands like rice fields. And one of the things I'm interested in is that as the climate changes, we expect more and more extreme precipitation, heavy rainfall, you know, two inches of rain in one day. For those of you who live around Clinton, the Halloween storm of uh, a two years ago was a perfect example of the kinds of things that uh, we see with climate change. And one of the things I'm interested in is whether those heavy rainfall events create temporarily flooded areas. So areas that are just flooding for a short bit, think like puddles uh, on a field, um, and whether those globally are actually a pretty significant source of methane. There's some recent work suggesting that these big heavy storms and big floods that are occurring with climate change are actually changing the carbon cycle and leading to more and more production of methane. Are you saying that warming, that when the temperature is higher there's more rain? Um, that's, uh, in most places, that is the case. Uh, you might think, hey, wait a minute, I heard about California, and it's on fire, and it's not raining there, and that's true too. Um, one of the general rules of thumb with climate impacts is that uh, areas that are, tend to be drier are getting drier and more prone to drought, and areas that tend to be wetter are getting wetter and more prone to heavy rainfall. So one of the things we're seeing with climate change, particularly here in the Northeast, is that um, uh, as the temperature warms, more moisture is evaporating and available to come down as precipitation. So we're seeing heavier and heavier rainfall events. Um, uh, and overall, we're seeing an increase in devastating floods, not just associated with, with hurricanes, but um, for example, in Germany and Belgium this summer, there were absolutely de devastating floods that, that killed a lot of people. And we've seen regular extreme flooding from extreme rainfall throughout the eastern United States in the last few years. That's consistent with what our climate models say is going on with climate change. So I'm kind of looking at another effect of that flooding, not just, of course, damaging people's homes, but that it might also be increasing the amount of greenhouse gases that the environment uh, releases, um, creating what we call a positive feedback to climate change, which in this case is distinctly negative to the human experience. Well, so one of the things you just touched on is how predictable, how very predictable all of these effects have been. Mm -hmm. that we can see in advance there's the possibility of of high temperatures in Germany and then it happens and it's horrible but it's it's maddening how predictable yeah. it is <laughs> yeah I mean I, I like to use a couple analogies because people might say well you can't say that storm is you know caused by climate change right like one storm you can't say that one storm was caused by human climate change 
Um, I like to, to look at it with a, a baseball analogy, if you will, which is you can't say any one home run was caused by people taking steroids, but when baseball players were all taking steroids, they hit a lot more home runs overall. And people are perfectly happy to say, well, you're getting more home runs because of steroids, so happy enough that the players who did that are not allowed into the Hall of Fame because they were accused of cheating. Um, it's like we have the climate on steroids right now. So we're getting more and more of these kinds of storms and events and our models um, for the future, which is another thing I use in my research group, um, project that we're going to continue to see warmer and in this part of the world, wetter conditions um, into the future, which means the higher likelihood of devastating floods and uh, devastating heat waves um, into the future. It, we have a mechanistic explanation for it. We understand why putting these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere increases uh, the temperature of the planet. We understand why putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere can increase the amount of precipitation that's falling in extreme weather events. And that's what we've been projecting. And then our observations are, are turning out to be right where the, the models have been projecting in terms of the experience of climate change. Yes, um, I'm thinking about um, what you said about um, how we understand every piece of this. Would you like to delve into that more or would you like to continue talking about wetlands? Yeah, I mean, we don't have to talk more about methane. It's just an example of one of these kinds of interesting areas for research right now. Um, and I really like these questions of, so as the planet warms, as we have heavier rainfall, what then happens to uh, the, the carbon cycle? Um, but maybe, you know, we can back up a little bit. Um, so climate change is caused by human activities increasing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And you might hear some people say, well, you know, CO2 is important for life. Plants need CO2 for photosynthesis. Um, how can CO2 be a pollutant? How can carbon dioxide be a pollutant? And there I like to use a, a blanket metaphor, which is that greenhouse gases function exactly like blankets uh, over the, the earth. Um, as the earth is warmed by the sun, it re-radiates some of that heat as long-wave radiation. Some of that long-wave radiation interacts with uh, chemicals in the atmosphere and is not able to escape to outer space. Um, and uh, greenhouse gases um, uh, it essentially re-radiate some of that long-wave radiation back towards the earth. Exactly like we're having a blanket, um, the blanket doesn't create the heat. The blanket traps your body heat. That's why you get warmer when you have a blanket on, right? Your body's making the heat and your blanket is just reflecting that heat back to you. Um, so on, you, you do want to have blankets. We do want greenhouse gases. We need to have greenhouse gases, otherwise the earth would be an ice ball. Um, it would be too cold for life. Um, the oceans would all be frozen. We don't want that world. But the problem is we're adding more and more blankets from doing things like burning fossil fuels for transportation and for electricity and through animal agriculture and our entire energy and food systems. And that means it's now a summer day and we're adding more and more duvets on and it's starting to get really hot and unpleasant under our little bed of earth blanket. So what we need to do is find ways to stop adding more blankets and to start removing some of the blankets that are already there so that we can come back to a very comfortable sleep because the earth uh, like all humans, needs that degree of comfort if life is to, to thrive. And, uh, and that's exactly what's uh, happening. Um, 
the rate of acceleration of increase of carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere is just really steady and unequivocal. We can measure these things, right? We have a continuous monitoring station since 1958 where we've been measuring the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's just steadily, steadily going up. And we know exactly why it's steadily going up. Um, because uh, we're taking all of these sources of carbon that haven't been in the atmosphere and we're lighting them on fire to get things like energy services. Now, I don't think the solution to all of this is to say um, we have to completely change our lifestyles and we can never have any fun again, right? As is sometimes portrayed. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is that, you know, people just want a hot shower and a cold beer. They, they don't really care how they get the heat for the hot shower or how they get the cooling for their refrigerator. And I just want to have the heating for our hot water and the cooling for a refrigerator in a way that doesn't kill people, right? With floods around the world. So you can still have what we call energy services. They just need to come from sources that don't involve burning hydrocarbons that weren't recently in the atmosphere. And, and that's the ticket to climate change um, is, is to see this as a problem of how do we get the same energy services we want and need, lighting, heating, transportation. These are all things that are important parts of life. But how do we get those in a way that um, doesn't create all these additional problems. That's kind of a framing around climate change, and maybe with that we can talk about some of the, the details of how we do the, either the research on greenhouse gases or some of the modeling and projections of what it's going to look like, you know, in, in the future. Uh, by all means. Yeah, great. Um, so one of the things I have a student doing right now um, is looking at how uh, little tiny ponds created by dams um, might be themselves sources of CO2 to the atmosphere. Um, in other words, we're worried about CO2 coming out of a tailpipe from your car, we're worried about CO2 coming out of your furnace or your boiler, um, but CO2 is always coming out of the landscape naturally. Um, uh, plants are decomposing and rotting. You, you think this time of leaf we, year, we call it fall because all the leaves are falling down. Well, those leaves have little bits of carbon in them and as bacteria and fungi chew them on the ground, more CO2 is getting put back in the atmosphere. And that's all pretty well in balance. The amount of CO2 that all the plants in the world take out of the atmosphere every year is pretty well balanced by the amount they, they put back into the atmosphere. And um, it's that equilibrium we're disrupting. But as we've created more and more of these kind of areas of slow-moving water with, you know, the hundreds of thousands of dams that have been put in all over the world, including right here on Hamilton's campus, we have three little ponds up at the, the reservoir property that were put in in the, in the early 20th century. Um, and these areas tend to be net sources of CO2. Um, the organic material that falls in them uh, rots and decomposes. Um, in, in ways that transfer that carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere. Um, and so I have a student right now who's built a uh, partial pressure of carbon dioxide sensor. So we're tracking just how much of a source these different ponds are and how, as we get more rainfall, as we get changes in temperature, whether the degree to which these uh, uh, human-made ponds are a source of CO2 is changing, right? That's the key question. It's all part of a big push on the inland waters carbon cycle um, uh, uh, that a group of scientists is working on. How do we better understand the dynamics and variability of uh, small-scale water bodies in terms of their, their role in the carbon cycle? Uh, I'm going to pause you right here yeah. because I love to see a Hamilton College connection. And these ponds are something that 
anybody on this campus could go visit. Yeah. So maybe you could explain where somebody should go if they want to go see these ponds. Yeah, the, so they're part of what we call the reservoir forest. It was a big uh, white pine plantation built right on the edge of reservoir, uh, of College Hill Road. Um, uh, at, so if you just drive up College Hill Road right past WHCL um, and don't come on the hour because that's when students transfer classes and you'll sit there in traffic. But if you uh, keep driving your electric car, of course, because we don't want to be contributing to climate change, um, and you go about a mile uh, um, up the hill, uh, on the left you'll see a, a sort of gate um, entrance, and there are no vehicles allowed in there, but you can uh, uh, walk in. Um, and there's a, a trail and a big sort of old pine plantation forest, and you walk in about a quarter mile there and you'll come to the first of three reservoirs. Um, these were originally uh, built with earthen dams <clears throat> as to, so, so to be the water source for, for Hamilton College of, of fresh water or, um, and to help fill a water tower that is still located up there. We have a million gallon water tower in this property. Um, and it's sort of part of our, our backup system uh, now so that uh, while we don't use the reservoirs for drinking water, we still use the water tower as a backup if we ever lose our, our water main connection um, with the regular source of drinking water. Uh, the ponds are quite uh, beautiful. They're, they're relatively small, um, and there's three of them kind of right in a row, and they're sort of a legacy of, you know, a hundred years ago when Hamilton was trying to figure out um, how to make sure that it had adequate supplies of, of water. Um, I believe that the plantation itself, you know, white pines wouldn't naturally grow on the top of this sort of skyline ridge near here, I believe that the plantation itself, I'm not 100% sure of this, um, was put in for firewood uh, because back in the day, um, students heated their dorms with firewood uh, at, in, in fires. Um, and so they had to haul wood and, you know, burn wood in fireplaces to heat the, the dorms. Um, we don't use it for that anymore. Uh, but these are sort of a legacy of the history of Hamilton where there are these, you know, three pretty ponds. And, not too many people go up there. Um, right now, I think there's some discussions about what the sort of future of the property should be, and there's some great work in uh, Andrea Townsend's lab in biology looking at um, uh, whether we can get hardwood, native hardwoods to regenerate uh, there and what the role of deer predation is on sort of the forest ecosystem up there. Um, so lots of cool work, but uh, that's where we have um, this partial pressure of carbon dioxide sensor system, which is a really cool little uh, design to measure the amount of CO2 that's in the water and uh, might, be, might be coming out of the surface of, of the water of these small ponds. I like how you put in, oh, of course you're driving your electric vehicle. <laughs> Maybe you're bicycling. Dear God, up the hill, it's so hard. But um, I, I think it's tricky because of course, the electric vehicle could be getting its power potentially from something mm -hmm. that's also contributing to CO2 being released to the atmosphere. And the problem is that just about every power plant is exacerbating the problem. Aha, well, let's talk about that because um, we actually walked through those calculations in my first year course called Carbon Footprints and Sustainability. Um, and while it's true that some electricity comes from fossil fuel sources, that's changing a lot quicker than most people think. Um, in New York State here, we have the second greenest grid in the nation. Um, and it's actually right now, uh, the electrons that are powering the equipment that you're hearing us uh, uh, on right now, in New York State, only about a third of that is coming from fossil fuels. 
Um, most of it is coming from hydropower and nuclear power and increasingly wind and solar. Um, in California right now on the grid, 20% of the electricity is produced by solar. The biggest day ever in Texas um, for wind, 59.4% of Texas's electricity on one particular day was produced by wind power alone. Um, wind and solar combined for about 10%, renewables for a little more than 20 when you include hydro. Um, so it's not true that all of your electricity is coming from a fossil fuel source. And increasingly, very little of it is coming from a particularly dirty source of burning coal. Um, that said, there is a carbon footprint associated with the electricity that um, is on the grid right now, whether you're in New York State or anywhere else in the country, um, because some fossil fuels are being uh, burned to generate that electricity. Um, the payback time for a new electric vehicle is pretty darn short. Um, so the idea out there that you're just trading one problem for another problem is sort of a false equivalency. That's not to say that uh, electric vehicles have no carbon footprint at all and no responsibility, that's not true. But after a year or two of driving most contemporary electric vehicles, um, you will already have saved more than the amount of CO2 that you'll emit from the lifetime of a, a, of a standard gas-powered vehicle. Um, that, that includes the construction of a Includes the production costs, yeah. Includes that's the, amazing. Uh, includes that. Um, the, the payback times where you can imagine, right, you look at all the CO2 from building a new electric vehicle, all the CO2 from transporting all those materials, all the CO2 from the electricity being generated, it varies from location to location. It's better in New York than Mississippi because our grid is much better in New York than it is in Mississippi. Um, you know, you have a lot of coal going into the electrons going into your, your vehicle in Mississippi. But um, it ranges from just usually a, a couple of years where you go into the... Um, uh, the positive direction for for your, uh, for carbon dioxide production, um, and so this idea that electric vehicles are just somehow displacing the CO two from your tailpipe to a, a, a smokestack maybe would have been true twenty years ago with the way the grid looked then, but is increasingly uh, better and better. Um, and in New York State, by twenty forty, we have a mandate that all electricity produced on this grid is from zero carbon sources. Um, and so that's going to take a lot of work to change that, and that's just New York. That's not all over the country, although the federal government has some plans for that. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to watch that. One of the big challenges with wind and solar, of course, is that it is not always sunny, and it does not always blow uh, wind, and you need to be able to, uh, on a five-minute by five-minute basis, match supply and demand on electricity grid, which is just a... I mean, there really is like an air, like an air traffic control tower, but for the grid of like people in one of those rooms that looks like a movie with all of the stuff going on where people are like, let's turn on this power plant. Let's turn off this power plant. We need to make sure we're matching all of the demand. Oh no, it's really hot out. Everyone's turning on their air conditioners. You know, where are we going to get the supply from? Um, that is very real and a big part of this equation. I have a friend working on uh, battery systems, mm. uh, specifically in Australia, where mm -hmm. they are especially in need of this kind of balancing act yep. to have a steady yep. level so, of electricity. Batteries, you know, uh, I mean, very famously, you watch The Graduate and what's the future of, you know, where you want to get into is plastics, right? So I'm just going to say it now, batteries. Um, because, because energy storage is so vital to being able to have the sort of imperative renewable electricity sources work, and it's not just for electricity. If we want to have electric vehicles for transportation or heat pumps to, to uh, heat our homes through electricity, we need more and more and more electricity right 
you know, right when we're moving towards sources that are more intermittent, like wind and solar, which are fantastic at generating electricity when it's windy and when it's sunny, and can be a huge part of the solution, but only if we've solved the energy storage problem. Indeed. Okay. What about hydroelectric dams? Yeah. Because you said <laughs> they're a source of methane. Yeah. Wants to go to <laughs> zero. Right. Um, maybe zero carbon. Do zero carbon. Care about zero methane? carbon electricity. You should carbon. care about methane. No, methane is counted in that carbon, so we just we lump it in. When we say zero carbon, we mean zero greenhouse gas. Because there's this tension here. You were yeah, on the one hand saying, it. "Oh, in New York State, we're we have actually a smaller fraction of fossil fuel power plants," and on the other hand, we have these lovely renewables, including wind and solar and gulp hydroelectric, <laughs> which of course is a source of methane. Um, so the devil's in the details on the dams. Um, how bad they are and how bad of a source they are depends on the dam. But the, the truth is that we're not likely to be building new large-scale hydroelectric uh, infrastructure. Um, dams have become so contentious, not mostly because of their greenhouse gas emission potential, but mostly because of what they do to fish and ecosystems. Um, and just the permitting and regulations required with installing new large-scale hydro dams, the sort of you know, New Deal era of building these, these you know, huge Hoover dams out west um, uh, uh, or all up and down the Columbia River, that's, that's done. We're not going to see a lot of it. And the same goes for nuclear, right? We have a lot of nuclear power right now, but no one's building new nuclear power plants right now, even though it is a zero-carbon source of electricity. Um, so what's the trade-off in terms of avoided you know, coal versus methane produced? Um, that calculation depends dam by dam. There's a lot of like multiplying things and comparing numbers in, in this carbon climate world, as I'm sure you can quickly imagine, which you know lends itself to interesting activities for students. But um, uh, it really depends on the dam because it depends how much of an area is flooded and what or kind of organic matter is in those flooded areas. So would a, a small area deep dam be preferable to yeah. a wide area shallow dam? In general, and then also one that um, is uh, doesn't have high amounts of organic materials. So a desert would be preferable. I mean, a desert might be problematic because of the water, and we'll talk about that. But um, might be preferable to an area with, let's say, a big lush forests that provide lots of the material for it to be emitted as, as methane. Um, over a few years after a dam's built, most of the methane that's gonna come out has already come out, and so the ongoing maintenance of a dam doesn't tend to increase further methane, although the CO2 questions that I'm looking at I think are important. But the truth is that it's really easy to treat hydroelectricity as a zero carbon source and there's actually a pretty big problem. I remember being at the climate talks one year in Brazil, which has built all of these dams all over the place, was trying to advocate that we shouldn't try to count the methane coming from dams because it was too hard, so we should just exclude it. Um, oh no. Which is just not the right direction to go. But that's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to do, I mean, that kind of methane accounting because it's so variable. But and, estimating it at zero is clearly, right, but it's clearly not the wrong. right number. It's clearly not the right number. And so, um, uh, you know, and I, I also have sort of <coughs> kind of uh, funny story about um, the ways we can do carbon accounting, which is uh, beavers. So we have a lot more beavers now than we did a hundred years ago. We we beavers were heavily hunted in North America, but they've made a roaring comeback. 
Turns out beavers, uh, what do they do? They build dams. What does that do? Create flat standing water. What does that do? Produce methane. So beavers actually have a really high carbon footprint and there's a big question in carbon accounting circles about whether to consider beaver, beaver methane emissions as anthropogenic, meaning caused by humans, or not. And I have a poll question in my class every year in the climate change class whether the students think uh, uh, we should consider beaver uh, methane emissions as human caused or not. The reason being that um, humans killed all the beavers and then are allowing them to come back and we take credit for the forests, which we also chopped down and now we're allowing to come back. We call those carbon sinks because the forests are regrowing all over the East Coast after we cut them all down. Um, and uh, I shouldn't say we, you know, um, sort of uh, European settlers cut them all down. And, and we call that a, a carbon sink and we count it as a sort of negative on our green, annual greenhouse gas inventory. Like it's, it's a good thing to have all those forests regenerating. But we don't hold ourselves responsible for the comeback of the beavers. We consider those to be natural sources of methane. Um, and it's sort of a philosophical question, really. Uh, maybe not one that all of your listeners are particularly interested in, but every time you see a beaver dam from now on, I want you to think, aha, it has a carbon footprint. It's producing methane. Yeah, the issue is, of course, that um, whether it's caused by humans or not, all of these changes yeah. compared to what it's been is leading to a problem for us as humanity yeah. and yes. indeed probably for all the other creatures as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the minutia of carbon accounting that we've been talking about recently, it's important for thinking about things like strategies for electric vehicles. It's important for thinking about sources of electricity and it's important for the kinds of research that I like to do to, so we can build better models of future feedbacks. But ultimately, um, climate change is pretty scary. It's not, you know, melting ice and polar bears, it's people getting flooded out of their homes or, or fleeing wildfires that are out of control. And, and that's the real human toll that we should be focused on, I think, and not, um, uh, not as much on the, like, oh, you know, it just means some melting ice caps. It means a lot more than that. And, it, and it's really, I mean, just look at how much damage extreme weather is causing every single year um, around the world and in the United States that's gonna continue with climate change and that's a real, real, um, a, a real, real hurt on a lot of people, a, a big disruption in a lot of people's lives. I remember living in California around the year, maybe 2007, and there were wildfires. And at the time there was no way to identify it as this would have or would not have happened yeah. um, if our carbon dioxide were at a different level, yeah. but um, it's becoming increasingly clear that we can actually attribute wildfires, flooding events to climate change. And so I think one of the things I'm anticipating is that there's going to come a day where I can say, today the climate crisis is getting me down. Today my life is measurably worse and I can say it's this thing that is the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, yes. And I think we can already do that now with the advances in the science of uh, what's called detection and attribution or attribution science. Um, uh, as you said, in 2007, maybe 10 years ago, we uh, in the climate science community were very careful to never say, you know, climate change caused this. Um, and uh, uh, I think now that's changed. Um, and it's changed for a couple of reasons. So one of the reasons is we have a lot more data and one of the reasons is we've come to understand how to sort of think about causality. 
right? And I do this exercise in my class and, um, on the detection and attribution day. I say, you know, how many people in this class think that smoking causes cancer? Everyone raises their hand. I say, well, does every person who's ever smoked a cigarette get cancer? Well, no, right? And does everyone who's ever had lung cancer, have they definitively smoked? No. Well, so how do we say that smoking has caused cancer? And we know it because we look at a whole group of people who have smoked and a whole group of people who haven't smoked, and we see a huge difference in the rates and incidence of cancer. And then we drill down and we have sort of a cellular mecha mechanistic explanation for, for why it's true. And that's actually how we think about risk and causation very frequently in our discussions, right? We don't say that, uh, you know, I mean, drunk driving causes accidents. We're happy to say that, of course. But that doesn't mean that every person who's ever driven drunk has gotten in an accident. And so that's how we talk about risk. In day-to-day -day lives, that's how our insurance and legal systems talk about risk. Um, and it's the same thing with climate change, right? We want to look at a world with greenhouse gases from humans and a world without it. And we use, do that with our models. So we can say, for example, like the 2003 heat wave that killed tens of thousands of people in Europe just couldn't have happened without uh, the extra boost from climate change. Um, I think it's something like a five sigma event if you're thinking about statistics, right? And you're thinking about sort of standard deviations and how extreme it was. Um, and all the time in science, we, you know, we use p-values. We, we talk about statistics and we talk about, well, you know, we want there to be a less than 5% sort of chance that this could have happened by chance. So anything bigger than two sigma yeah, would exactly. be, that wouldn't just happen on its own. Somebody <laughs> right, had exactly. to change it. Right, and I mean, you know, people like to throw around this number that 97% of scientists agree with climate change. Okay, well, that was from a 2014 study where people just looked at the published literature and did some meta-analysis. How about this? The statistics of climate change are as unequivocal as 99.99999, I believe five nines after the period, uh, percent. <laughs> right? Like, that's certainty at this point. That doesn't mean every impact we can attribute has that same sigma level, right? That just means that humans have warmed the planet. We're, we're, we're as certain um, as we are about anything else, right? Um, as about plate tectonics, for example. <laughs> Um, we're, we're not as certain that, you know, hailstorms in this part of the world are definitively increased by climate change, right? Because we need lots of data in order and lots of models to do the same kind of science that we do for cigarettes cause cancer, um, but for, you know, the particular impacts. Um, and so that's one of the things we've seen in the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report um, that has just... Uh, come out this, uh, this year in 2021, which is you know, a group of scientists from around the world that assess the, the current state of the climate science literature. And one of the things we see there is just that warming, increases in heat waves, increases in heavy rainfall events, these things are very definitively linked to climate change, which is very definitively linked to human activities. But lots of other kinds of questions like um, you know, people are really studying the polar vortex, for example. Um, we have some mechanistic explanations that link that to climate change, but the jury's still out on just sort of how well we can fully link that. Um, uh, the, the extreme cold that we've seen and that hit Texas really badly. Um, and we're also wondering about the, um, the flow of ocean currents. Right, the AMOC shutdown. Um, so, uh, Atlantic meridional overturning circulation made famous by the movie The, uh, the Day After Tomorrow, um, 
where you can have a big pool of melting uh, ice by Greenland, um, land fast ice, which is causing fresher, colder water to sort of accumulate in the ocean surface just south of Greenland. And um, that may be slowing down essentially the Gulf Stream that brings warm ocean water to Europe, which means that, you know, I mean, London is at the same latitude as like n northern Quebec, where it's basically tundra. Right? But London is not tundra. Why? Because of the extra heat content in the water from the Gulf Stream and the ocean circulation, um, which goes around uh, uh, you know, from, from west to east in the Atlantic. If the rate of that heat transfer from the Gulf Stream slows down because of this sort of blocking effect of the, the ice uh, melting freshwater uh, ice at the surface of the ocean, um, that could really uh, trigger cooling in parts of Europe, for example. Um, uh, and there's some evidence that the, the strength of that current may be slowing down, but whether or not that's due to climate change, and we had that sort of mechanistic explanation, right? It was made famous in a movie, but there are lots of people studying that right now because it's not at all certain that it's gonna happen. And of course, uh, just for those of you who've seen that movie out there, if it does happen, it's not gonna freeze everything in two days, but it just might lead to some uh, unnatural cooling as a sort of effect of the ice uh, melt in, in Greenland. It can't just be the Gulf Stream, because Vancouver is not as cold as equal latitude cities. Right, yeah, which is because but of the Kuroshiro current, which is, a, is, is the same, it's, it's the same thing in the Pacific. Oh, uh, does it flow from warmer areas? Yeah, so in the Pacific, the, the currents flow up the coast of Japan, just like the Gulf Stream, and come across to southeast Alaska. And I thought it was flowing from the... And then it comes, and, again, and then it comes down. But it does create this warm uh, circulation. So then Vancouver is actually experiencing largely the same phenomenon that, that England is experiencing, just with Pacific Ocean water. Um, okay, so there's a number of places in the world that are heavily affected. Yeah, um, the Arctic in particular. So there's something called Arctic amplification that we've seen in all of our models. Whether we uh, run a future that has, you know where we successfully drive electric cars and bicycles everywhere and there's almost no emissions, or we run a, a future with kind of runaway greenhouse gas emissions, um, where, where on earth gets the warmest the quickest is the Arctic. And the reason that's true is not just because, of course, the Arctic, that's where the ice is. No, it actually has to do with the loss of sea ice. So the Arctic Ocean is covered with sea ice, um, and more and more of that sea ice uh, is melting each year as the planet warms. The warmer that the Arctic Ocean gets, the more sea ice melts, and that exposes more open ocean water. Well, it turns out that ice is white and ocean water is dark. And as incoming solar radiation comes from the sun, it, instead of bouncing off the white ice and being reflected back into space, um, it gets absorbed by the darker ocean, which uh, um, creates and holds on to more heat um, what that means is that the more uh, that sea ice melts in the Arctic, the uh, more it will continue to melt because the, it will get warmer. Um, we call that the Arctic amplification effect. So sea ice loss leads to more warming on its own. And that uh, means that the Arctic is sort of ground zero for, uh, for climate change. But one of the stories about that is that it's really important to pay attention to your local climate impacts, right? Every part of the world is going to experience climate change slightly differently depending on where it's located and its physical geography. Um, and so, you know, climate change as it manifests in California is very different as it manifests in Clinton, New York, is very different as it manifests in the Arctic, is very different as it manifests in, say, Australia. Um, all of those places sort of will experience climate change in their own particular way. 
which means that preparing for it and dealing with the impacts of climate change, what we call adaptation, uh, is inherently a local challenge. Okay, Clinton, New York. Right, Clinton, New York, what's gonna happen here? So this is another thing my, my students and I have looked at in my research group. Um, and we can take these downscale uh, future model projections. What does that mean? That means uh, we run future simulations of the global climate, um, zoomed in at a 1 16th by 1 16th degree scale box, which is basically like from Clinton to New Hartford, if you're from around here. Um, and we run different versions of the future. One where greenhouse gas emissions just continue and continue and continue. One where uh, we get our act together and they plummet really rapidly, um, sort of implement the Paris Agreement and all of its uh, components and we see a big change. And then another that's kind of in between the two. And honestly, that the in between the two is probably the most likely at this point. The runaway greenhouse gas emissions is probably not the most likely because um, it sort of assumes that no one does anything about fossil fuels. And the truth is that we're starting to see some evidence that we are. Well, anyway, we run these three different sort of visions of the future uh, as inputs into models of the entire global climate. And then we look at, well, what does it look like here in this tiny box around Clinton? Um, and what we see is that it will get warmer and wetter. But it really matters what we do. So if we do nothing about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions just continue unabated, we will experience summers um, in the 2080s and 2090s with more than two months of days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which is basically the weather of Georgia. Um, in other words, so not just you know a few days above 90, but two, two, two months plus straight above 90 degrees. Um, we definitively see an increase in extreme precipitation in all three of these scenarios. So one of the things we can say with that is that these heavy, heavy flooding rains that we've been getting, those are going to keep happening whether we take climate action or not. We've already changed the climate enough to, to trigger these heavier rainfall events. Um, and that's actually good news. It's good news because we can adapt to that. If we figure out how to do better flood mitigation and stormwater management, we can sort of adapt to the new flooding climate normal if we take our, get our act together. Um, and the other good news is that if we don't have runaway greenhouse gas emissions, we will just have maybe a week or two of days above 90 degrees, which is a lot easier to deal with than two to three months, right? We might be more like Pennsylvania and less like Georgia. And um, I think, you know, a lesson from this is it really matters. Um, the particular impacts we might worry about, uh, increasing, in, increasing prevalence of tick-borne illness, um, uh, Lyme disease, the, the tick that spreads Lyme disease survives better in warmer winters and we're experiencing those warmer winters. Um, the other thing we see in the models is winter whiplash continuing. This is the term for what we've all experienced, which is, you know, it'll be 60 degrees on a day in February and then there'll be a snowstorm and then it'll be 50 degrees again. Um, this kind of wacky winter weather uh, is what happens when you get these oscillations where it's increasingly above freezing for longer periods of time in the winters. Um, ice fishing and snowmobiling is, is, uh, is going to be more and more dangerous because of um, less hard freezes in the winter. Um, and then impacts on agriculture, apple crops and, and, uh, and dairy production are, are likely to suffer from, um, from climate change. And apples in particular are at risk because um, we're going to get earlier and earlier bloom dates in the spring. Um, and as the apple bud breaks open, if it breaks open too early, um, it's at risk of having a killing frost after that. 
And the way that apple biology works is it, it um, uh, if you get enough warm days in January and February, then the bud will open sooner. And sort of our models project that instead of April being apple blossom month, we might see with runaway climate change, February being apple blossom month, um, which ultimately will make it really hard to grow apples here, right? We won't be as good an environment for apples. Um, uh, the big, big damaging one that's at risk of people's lives here is flooding. Um, and we've seen it in our community, and, uh, and it's the one we need to prepare for, but it's also one we can take action on, and that's, and that's good news. Um, so I'd say, you know, when you think about climate change in Clinton, I want you to, you know, think about uh, um, people's homes flooding and uh, water accumulating around Hannaford's and, uh, and down at the bottom of the hill and the Oriskany sort of slamming and overtopping its banks and, and flooding some of the neighborhoods in, in low-lying Clinton, because that's what we've seen and that's what we're going to keep seeing. I live pretty close to the Oriskany Creek, so I'm, I'm well aware of it. <laughs> um, okay, so further off, I know that people people fear human extinction. Yeah. Uh, the last time I checked, the recommendations did not say that climate change could cause human extinction mm -hmm. because it kind of self-corrects. Yeah. Um, but is that still true? <laughs> should... should should we, be, Should we be afraid of everyone dying, right? Is the apocalypse upon us? Um, uh, I tend to be optimistic about these things, and I'll tell you three reasons why. Um, first, uh, we've seen an increasing uh, amount of movement towards doing something about emissions. Is it going to be enough to, quote, deal with the problem and avoid climate change? No, we've already experienced climate change and we'll continue to experience it. But I do think that there will be enough action to avoid the worst case scenarios. Then in other words, like if you have a range of scenarios from absolutely as bad as possible to as amazing and good as possible and everything in between, we are definitely not at the as good as possible, but we're also definitely not as the as bad as possible. Um, emissions have declined in the United States over the last few years. Um, they're going up globally. CO2 is going up globally, but greenhouse gas emissions have peaked. In the United States, um, we are actually going down. Are we going down fast enough? Absolutely. We're still emitting carbon dioxide. Oh yeah, we're still emitting carbon dioxide. We haven't gone to zero. What year uh, was the peak? Um, people quibble about the peak, but it's looking like somewhere around 2007, 2008 was the was the peak before that first crash, and we've been pretty flat since the recovery from the recession ten years ago. The big reason is that we've stopped burning as much coal for electricity primarily because uh, natural gas has become a lot cheaper. So this is sort of in the absence of actual comprehensive policy, right? We don't have a big new climate you know, law. Um, it's just been straight economics that have driven the transition to natural gas. The other thing that's helped is energy efficiency has gone up and the efficiency of our vehicle fleet has gone up. So um, uh, vehicle standards um, for miles per gallon um, have, have, have trended upwards and then um, we're building and using devices that don't uh, use as much per, per unit area. But by, by far and away, the big peak is um, the, the reason that we've trended downwards is the number of coal-fired power plants that have shut down. I know here on campus, uh, the list is undergoing renovation, yep. and their HVAC system apparently is carbon neutral. Yes. Or, yes. yes. Okay. Um, and many, uh, you know, we actually have some electric ground source heat pumps that heat our buildings, like the new health center and the one we're in right now, actually, and, and the we're Science in Center, and Sadov. Um, uh, and that's something that you don't really see. So underground, we have these um, cool heat pump systems that are actually extra using electricity to extract heat from the ground and throw it into the buildings. 
um, and the new uh, um, design for the sort of central campus uh, root hall that's undergoing re renovation is going to have a, a multi-building uh, ground source heat pump system. So you might not see the sort of high visibility of this, but um, Hamilton's buildings are, are, are taking actions in this direction. That said, so I gave you one reason why I don't think we're gonna be extinct, which is that in some developed countries, we're starting to see emissions peak, and we're also seeing um, uh, nearly 100 countries now make a pledge to go to net zero emissions by 2050. Will they get there? Probably not, but will they make progress? Yes. The next reason I'm hopeful um, for all of this is that uh, human population is going to stabilize in, in this century and probably decline. Um, and what that means is that uh, the assumption that we're going to head to 12, 13, 14 billion people is not going to be borne out because of investments in development and women's empowerment around the world and education around the world. That birth rates have started to drop. Um, uh, and that is great news. So the, the year where the most number of people were added to this planet is in the past. Um, which means we're, we've passed the inflection point in this logistic growth curve. Now, another way of saying that is we're going to reach a total number of humans that sort of flatlines um, and might even decline a little bit from there. Um, and so that means we're not going to sort of continue in this exponential world of sort of human impact, human impact, human impact, because uh, population is going to stabilize. The third reason why I don't think we're headed for an uh, apocalypse is we're going to have r bad climate change, but that doesn't mean we get kicked off the planet right? Um, extinction is very different from bad climate change. If we never did anything about greenhouse gas emissions and we entered a five, six, seven degree world of warming, um, that's enough warming to totally change our earth system functioning in ways that we have no idea what it would look like. But if we end up going to two or three degrees, that's really bad climate change. Ultimately, when everything stabilizes, it's going to be a lot of sea level rise and a lot of places uh, people are going to get displaced. So I don't want to sugarcoat this. We're talking about lots of people getting displaced, lots of people dying, and lots of people suffering. Mm. But I, I do think that the idea of that there's sort of a, a binary, like extinction versus success, right? Kicked off the planet versus, versus solving climate change. I think there's actually a big middle where we neither fully solve climate change nor do we get eliminated from the planet. That we're kind of going to be somewhere in between. And the choices we make now guide the trajectory of, you know, how much we tilt on this sort of tiltometer away from extinction and towards like success. Um, but I think there's a big sort of tiltometer between extinction and success on climate change um, that we're going to end up in. And whether you see that as optimistic or not is sort of up to you. Um, but that's my sort of eyes wide open assessment. Well, I would interpret that to mean that we can't be fatalistic. We can't just say, ah, oh, there's nothing I can do. Throw up our hands. Might as well turn on the air conditioner. Right. And at this, so it, but it puts a lot of responsibility on humanity because right. every action we take can save a life. Absolutely. And that last point is really vital um, because it didn't have to be the case that there's a linear response between um, CO2 emissions and the warming produced and then harms produced by warming. But these are actually pretty linear in our, in our assessments. Um, in other words, every unit of CO2 that you put in the atmosphere causes one more increment of warming, which causes one more increment of harm. And what that means is that every unit of CO2 you keep out of the atmosphere through any activity you can muster as an individual is helping to save lives, right? Like, 
it, there's not a sort of weird threshold effect or nonlinearity in this. It's like blessedly linear. Um, and that linearity is really vital as a, as a, a talking point for encouraging people to take whatever actions they can because every little bit that you do uh, helps. And in the future, you'll be able to run your air conditioner and not worry about it because it's all coming from zero carbon sources except for the methane produced by the hydropower. Um, <laughs> Well, perhaps batteries. <laughs> yeah, a great, power, fantastic batteries with lots power. of solar and lots of wind. I mean, the exponential growth curves for wind and solar are just unbelievable. Um, they're cost competitive at this point. They're absolutely um, uh, skyrocketing upwards and are really creating a lot of jobs. Um, I think the one of the big challenges is, though, you do have to put them places, right? And you might be putting them on a farm field where people don't want to have a bunch of solar panels. Um, or in someone's backyard that they don't want to have giant, you know, 80 meter rotor blades on a, on a wind turbine. And those are really real considerations, um, in part because we might dismiss it as sort of, well, that's just not in my backyardism and come on, grow up people. But um, local resistance to renewable energy projects is actually a really important uh, part of this dynamic. And we don't want to just build things insensibly. We don't want to disrespect people. Um, and there is a sort of wild west of a solar boom right now happening across the United States where there not even all the sort of regulatory structures in place to, to handle it. And we're seeing lots and lots of land be gobbled up into solar in ways that um, are really exciting from a climate perspective, but really might change the way the landscape looks in ways that, that people are just made discomforting or, or that discomforts people and I think that's a really real consideration we need to pay attention to when sort of advocating for climate solutions. I think all electricity generation comes with a price yeah. and exactly. I've seen that price both monetary but also um, unfortunately a price in lives. Yeah that's right um, that's right and you know and the other thing is that it's still a power plant and it's still an industrial process, right? Like you need, you have all these batteries, you need the lithium to go into the, a lot of these lithium ion batteries that needs to be mined. And there are people that live around those areas that are being mined. So I, I, I wanna be eyes wide open to the idea that climate solutions might displace fossil fuels, but there are lots of different uh, trade-offs and considerations in all of these technologies. The idea that there's sort of perfection out there in a way that everyone is always gonna be happy with it isn't right, right? Because everything does have impacts and does have consequences, um, whether it's offshore wind or lithium mines or any of the other uh, aspects of the renewable future. Um, that said, you know, I, I sort of on a day-to-day -day basis think, well, I'm, I wanna help train students to go out in this world for, with a liberal arts perspective on it, right? With the ability to, to crunch the numbers and do the quantification, understand the nature of the problem, and also be part of building the solutions that work for as many people as possible. Um, and that's what we're sort of trying to do in the, in the curriculum that I, that I teach and then also in the, in the research that I have my students get up to. It's really important work and challenging. It's, uh, it's 11.55 a.m. right now. Do you Great. need to head out? I am gonna need to head out in about two minutes. Okay, so, yeah. well then, um, in, the, in the time we have left, um, maybe you could give us a, a take-home message from the, all of this expertise that you bring as a scholar of climate change? Um, so one of the things that gives me hope is that five or 10 years ago, I spent all my time you know, dealing with the fact that a lot of people don't think that climate change is quote unquote real. Um, 
And one of the things that gives me hope is that we're starting to have a conversation about what do we do about it. And it's okay for that to be a political conversation because it is about our values. It's okay for politics to be like, what should we spend our money on and how should we go about solving this problem because there are different choices to make along the way with that. And we should be treating that as a political question. How do we solve these problems? Um, so I've seen a tremendous amount of change in the few short years that I've been doing this kind of research in the landscape of, of sort of what's possible and what's going on. Ten years ago, no one thought that wind and solar would be what they are today. And ten years ago, everyone thought that climate change would be even worse than it is today. And that gives me hope. Um, that said, I do fundamentally believe that this is the defining challenge of our times. Um, that the impact of climate change on our human communities and our ways of life is profound and far-reaching. And I encourage everyone to think, you know, what can I do in my life? What can I do in the sort of projects of my life, but also in my own individual actions? But also to think, what does the future look like, right? If we electrify our transportation system, if we move away from fossil fuels, what does a decarbonized future look like? And find ways to start having a conversation about what that looks like, because that's the world we need to build. And the imperative is clear. Um, the trajectory is clear. That's the world we are building. So if you want to be a part of building that just decarbonized world, figure out what you want that to look like and, and do what you can to help build it. Beautiful. Thank Thanks. you so much, Professor Aaron Strong. Thanks so much, Viva. This was a, a, an absolute pleasure um, to have these conversations. And thanks for, for doing these conversations. I really enjoyed it. I'm Viva Horowitz. This is Significant Figures on WHCL-FM, Clinton, New York. Thank you so much.